just when you think that you've avoided death and you've beaten the odds, it comes back and bites you right in the ass. Hello and welcome to episode 37 of Nerd Explosion. I am your host, John Wintrub, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Sean Clark. How are you doing today, Sean? You know, man, I am doing absolutely fantastic. Had a great vacation. Good to be back in Flagstaff. I'm going to be moving apartments in a few days. So that should be a lot of fun. But yeah, let's talk about some death. Yeah, we have a lot of death to talk about. Or just kind of like not like bad luck, unfortunate events, horrible circumstances. And that comes across, I think, in all of the shows we're talking about, except My Hero Academia, which somehow managed to be kind of light and fun this week. Thank God. <laughs> Compared to everything else we watched. But first, we got to talk about um, Star Wars The Bad Batch and... I think this might be my favorite episode of the whole season, if not just for all of the cool lore stuff that we got with the Stormtroopers. Yeah, we got a lot of backstory and, and lore additions with, with the Stormtroopers. Uh, we saw the replacements. Bad Batch were obviously not very happy about this. Uh, we saw Gregor, who we... who. Canonically, we haven't seen since the droid arc where he looked like he blew himself up. Yeah, as he mentions in this episode. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And yeah, what did you think of us seeing Gregor? I know that you had previously talked about wanting to see Gregor and Wolf in the show. So what did you think about finally seeing Gregor and then his story in this episode? I thought I thought it was very nice. He is is a character that I enjoyed seeing in Rebels, uh, but obviously very different from in Clone Wars. Uh, he went from completely serious to completely humorous. So now it was kind of a mix of the two, but I liked seeing his perspective of the change of clone troopers and stormtroopers. And, oh yeah, Kaminoans uh, are screwed big yeah. time. Yeah, I think that in this episode, we're really starting to see the ramifications of the transition from the Republic to the Empire. We're really starting to see all of the major steps being taken to get the empire that we see in things like the original trilogy and Star Wars Rebels and Rogue One and all of that. And the first step is them transitioning from the CC or CT clone troopers to the TK stormtroopers. And I think that the armor for them is kind of neat in this episode. It's still kind of small and more like and kind of clone trooper phase two modeled like in the shape, but it doesn't have the fin on the top and, um, they're more white and more plain looking, kind of like how the stormtroopers are, where they're all meant to look be a, like a faceless army for the Empire. And we kind of have seen that with the clone troopers throughout the show already, with them having completely white armor only for a select few not having that, like um, the clone commander on Ryloth. Um, so I think that's really interesting to see this transition, also see how the various clone troopers are reacting to it because not all of them are happy i'm sure that some of the commandos are happy that they're still being used in action that they're uh, that they have a purpose within the the empire but some of them like gregor um have a bit of a rebellious streak and want more out of what they've been trained for and don't want to just be replaced well yeah it's understandable it's human nature to not want to be replaced and want to be needed not just replaced you know replaces a very natural fear to have. So it makes sense that other clone troopers don't want to, don't want to be, you know, just, just follow in line, so to speak. And I like that we see Gregor start to separate himself from that by having that rebellious face, because if you go back to the droid arc, he was simply working at a restaurant. He was sort of fitting in, but then he, with a little push, he was able to get out of that. Mm -hmm. So, because of that, you know, development we got earlier with Gregor, it is now in his character to, to escape the norm. So I really like that carryover. Yeah, absolutely. I think that he's always kind of been a, a free thinker, kind of like how most of the ARC troopers are in um, Star Wars canon as well, like Fives and Echo and even Jesse to an extent. Um, or like clone commanders like Rex, who were all specifically trained to be able to have this sort of independent thinking compared to most other clones. Um, and I like that coming through with his character a lot in this episode, 
But I, as you mentioned earlier, we start to see the comedic side to him, which is as represented by the brain damage that he sustained from the explosion. And it's a lot more mild in this episode compared to how it is in Rebels, like we do to him being so much younger here than he was in Rebels. There's like a full, I think it's like eight, eight, probably like, not eight years, like 15 to 16, maybe even 17 years between now and his first appearance in Rebels. I don't remember how much time there was between the second season and the events of New Hope, but... Yeah, I, I do, I do like that a lot. So, basically, the Kaminoans' operation was shut down. And I like how, I like how basically the news was delivered. Adam uh, Rampart is being, let's just say, a bit tyrannical at this point, uh, to say the least. I mean, if he was already bad enough on Ryloth, I mean, it, it was already, it was also displayed on Camino where he just said, "Well, you're shut down." uh get out of here basically yeah it's your classic imperial officer i mean he he has a very similar personality to characters like tarkin or krennic um or the the governor governor price from star wars rebels he has a very he's what you imagine officials in the empire are like they're tyrannical they think that their way is the highway um and they're xenophobic they're against uh, non-humanoid planets or systems being involved in any way with the empire's government or military or any of that. Yes, they are xenophobic. As uh, as I'm reading in uh, in the in the Thrawn trilogy, because I've because I've been reading that, and yeah, there's been some minor, you know, I've seen minor scuffles with that, and you know, whenever Thrawn sees any new Imperial officer, they're just like, wait, how are you? in this empire um but i'm glad that we're seeing that here yeah absolutely um i think that the empire over the last season like there since we first started seeing characters like tarkin in the bad batch i think i've done an excellent job of portraying the distaste i think everyone in the galaxy has for the empire almost immediately there's been a few systems that were kind of okay with their with the transition over to the Empire, I think that even some of the separatist aligned planets, like we saw with Raxus earlier this season, um, were kind of somewhat okay with the takeover because it seemed like it would cause peace. And because the galaxy had been riddled with war for the last three years between the separatists and the Republic, a lot of them just wanted that peace so badly that they were willing to give in to the Empire. And the clones, on the other hand, are the opposite. They've always lived with this war and the fight of the Clone Wars. So now that they're starting to be replaced by the Empire, that's when we start seeing problems with that. And the Kaminoans, to an even bigger extent, are war profiteers that profited specifically off of the Clone Wars. They even actively tried to get the Clone Wars to last longer by buying and cloning more troops for the Republic for the sake of having the war keep the continue just so that, you know, they could make more money. And they're far from the only company that's like that. Most of the military leaders behind the separatist cause were like that too. Most of them like the Trade Federation or the Techno-Union Army were primarily meant to, they're capitalists that are taking advantage of the war, the profit off of it. And with no war and the Empire seemingly wanting nothing to do with these planets, whether it is Camino or Geonosis or Kashyyyk or any of, or Wasan, um, it seems that they don't want any involvement with these other planets. And I think the first step of us seeing that is what happens on um, Camino. And we also saw a bit of it with what was going on on Ryloth. Yeah, uh, we saw uh, the Emperor shut down the Trade Federation. Uh, the end of Revenge of the Sith. Mm-hmm. And it's also like in real life, uh, war profiteers are just like capitalism. I mean, that's how the United States escaped the Great Depression. World War II happened. It, uh, they needed to build a bunch of artillery and stuff like that, and so everyone had a job, which stimulated the economy. So it does make sense. And But now that you know the empire is ruling, there's no need for that. So, it's, so the effects are pretty devastating. Yeah. 
And we've been seeing stuff like this happen since the events of the Clone Wars. If you remember back in season six of the Clone Wars, we saw the Republic take over the banking clan in order to remove them from the equation of the war because they were profiting so much and Palpatine kind of wanted the banks for himself so that when the Empire finally came around, he didn't have to worry about money or competing profits with other systems. He could control it all himself so he could take all the money that was in the bank and use it for the Empire's big projects like the Death Star. This is very true. So um, our good old friend Hunter has been has been kidnapped. He has been captured. Yeah, um, I think that comparatively to what happened with Omega earlier in the season when she was captured by Cad Bane in order to retrieve her for the Empire or the Kaminoans more specifically, we kind of saw the Bad Batch kind of rally behind trying to rescue her. And now that it's Hunter that is in danger instead, the leader of their team, the one that kind of was able to always keep them functioning together. Um, Now that he's gone, it's going to be interesting to see if we're going to have an episode without Hunter um, leading the Bad Batch and how the Bad Batch is going to act without him as their leader, keeping them in line and not going too off the walls. I especially am curious how Wrecker is going to deal with not having any real leadership going into the next episode. But it's also going to be interesting to see what, how the Empire chooses to treat Hunter, who is a deserter. We've never really seen how the Empire has dealt with deserters before um, because we've never really gotten that kind of storyline in Star Wars. I mean, we got a little bit with it with Callus, but he was more so working as a double agent. He wasn't someone that was fully captured by the Empire, and we got to see him be tortured and used because he was luckily enough to be captured by Thrawn, who isn't really too hot under the torturous interrogation style of uh, taking prisoners. Yeah, no, because as the author, uh, Timothy Zahn, has said, Thrawn is, uh, is not evil in the absolute slightest. He's just uh, incredibly intelligent um, and likes to use his opponent's weaknesses against them. I wouldn't say, like, that is bad. Like, I mean, but I think it's smart. And, and he's not like, overwhelmingly evil like he doesn't really have wrath except for maybe his people that deserted him true well i just i i just i just read about him using a buzz story to get to get out of a prison that was pretty cool Mm -hmm. yeah the first thrawn book is really interesting if you ever want to learn more like we've talked about how like xenophobic on the empire is and how weak they are structurally and all the the problems that come with them if you want to warn about all of those issues and how um, a character like Thrawn, who is the only alien general in Star Wars, the only like admiral, alien admiral of the Empire in the Star Wars universe, it's really creative and interesting the way that Timothy Zahn writes him in that book. Um, and it takes a lot of the stuff that we're currently seeing in the Bad Batch and kind of recontextualizes it just a little bit, which is really interesting. Yes, it is. But yeah, I'm very interested to see... Um... That the, the dynamic of the group with Hunter being captured and what they're going to do about it, and with Crosshair confronting Hunter in his cell. I'm very excited for these last two episodes. Yeah, I'm interested to see what type of uh, conversation Crosshair and Hunter are going to have. Oh, yeah, I'm very it should excited. be really good. Um, I mean, Dee Bradley Baker is a fantastic actor, and I think the fact that he's able to channel so many different personalities, especially in the cast of The Bad Batch, more so than with any of the clone troopers we've seen, the fact that he can like give each of them a unique voice to make them sound different um, is really spectacular, and I'm excited to see what, a, what kind of conversation he has for us going into the next episode. I am very excited indeed. Of course, going into our anime discussion, we of course had another episode of My Hero Academia, but first we're going to talk about episode 15, which is probably the more exciting one and the more interesting one to talk about because, oh boy, did a lot happen in episode 15. And those, of course, to start off, we're going to talk about the Hawks stuff. And there was a lot of stuff with Hawks in the Mother Liberation Army because apparently they're working with the League of Villains. Yeah, so, that's not that's not terrifying at all. But yeah, it's not I, a little bit. Yeah. yeah, we all know that's not going to be stable though because Shigaraki kind of is not is not really loyal to anyone except his own League of Villain mates. He's he, not a team player. He very much uh, has his own goals in mind, and it's likely just using the Meta Liberation Army to have a larger, you know, force to overtake the country with. Exactly. Um, but. 
the the fact that you know through hawks we, we discovered that they're basically using these work study programs with with class 1a and 1b to basically train them as reinforcements for an attack in four months because as we know we um all might has kind of kept white when he was a number one hero he kept an era of peace so they weren't training as many heroes nor were they training them as well as they probably should have been because they didn't think they needed to because all might was kind of like the sole protector of japan with him there everyone kind of got to relax and sit back while all might kind of got was able to take charge with him gone they're realizing how weak their forces are and how weak their hero society is without their their beacon of hope that was there before now that he's gone and that void there's nothing really there to fill it i mean like endeavor is trying his best and all of the the top heroes in japan are doing their best to try to fill the gap left by all might but they're not really able to yet and that's kind of where the heroes from ua kind of are coming in they're there to maybe at least lessen the the stress that a lot of the heroes have now that there's so many fledgling heroes being trained, but at the same time, they now have to be trained faster in order to catch up to where the heroes are so that they can deal with all the conflicts that we're seeing with the League of Villains and the Metal Liberation Army. Yeah, and seeing uh, in, in seeing Endeavor's perspective where he doesn't really agree with it, but he's like, all right, well, let me train them. And then I love... I love Endeavor's interactions with uh, with our three lovable heroes. I especially love um, where Deku is just rambling. You see uh, Todoroki and Baku just getting annoyed out of their minds. But Endeavor is just listening to all of it, and he is not phased by which. He is like probably the first character in My Hero Academia that is not phased by his rambling. It's not just that Endeavor isn't phased by Deku's ramblings. He doesn't interrupt him a single time. He listens to everything he said. He interprets and shortens what he said to make a conclusion and then gives him helpful advice, something that All Might has never been able to do. Nope. That's insane. <laughs> yes. No, like, that, it's that's... weird liking Endeavor so much. It feels like he's, he's really doing his best to try to redeem himself over all the terrible things that he's done, all the, the little care he's taken into um, teaching his sidekicks and protégés before this. It seems like he's taken all of the criticism that Todoroki and Deku have given and all, my, and all the other heroes have given them the heart, finally. Yes, which is great to see. Obviously, uh, Todoroki still hasn't forgiven him, probably never will, and that's fine, but he's trying his best, and I love how brutal he is with uh, Deku and Bakugo, which was awesome to see. Uh, and I love how he's like, well, you better keep up with me then. But they're very tired, showing how much of a gap there is between Endeavor and even though even though our three heroes are very powerful, they're nowhere near close to Endeavor. Oh, of course. Yeah. And I think that Endeavor treats Bakugo very similarly to how Best Genus did, with a little difference because Endeavor can recognize and relate to him a little bit because he understands Bakugo's strive to be the number one hero because Endeavor has that too. But he also gives him a lot of tough love and understands um, what type of personality Bakugo has and knows how to deal with it correctly. Yeah, which, which, uh, which was great to see. Um... Yeah, I really, really enjoyed all the Endeavor stuff, and I'm extremely excited to see more of, of Endeavor training them because it's been very fun and fascinating so far. Like, like whenever it happens, like you're, you're invested in it, and which, is, which is something I love to see. Yeah, the animation this ep- in episode 15 wasn't like the most spectacular, but all of the dialogue that Endeavor had talking to Bakugo, Todoroki, and Deku was brilliant it's amazing actually getting to see him kind of act as a teacher and we really get to see what type of hero he actually is he like we've always known that he was really smart and intelligent and he very obviously knew what he was doing that's why he was such a good hero we saw this back in season two during the nomu um attack in hosu so the see that the see is um heroism in this episode um partaken so well i think that my hero has always done a really good job of showing the heroes like protecting bystanders and 
um, showing how much they care about what's happening in the environment around them to keep property damage to a minimum is really awesome. And I think that moment when um, Endeavor is talking to Deku, Bakugo, and Todoroki about the fact that they aren't as fast as him, but they need to be they need to be as fast as they can because if they slip up, if they mess up even slightly, it's not like it is in school. If they do so in real life, someone could die. And I like how you worded it. People won't be coming home. Mm-hmm. To and, really drill in that point. Yeah, it's, it's a very powerful moment, just seeing him with his hands stopping the truck. It's important to note that Endeavor doesn't have strength. Like, <laughs> he's, he's not, like, super strong like All Might or Deku are. Um, so it kind of is showing like how physically imposing Endeavor is and how, um, and how frightening he is to some of the citizens because that's how he is able to stop events like that from happening, like crashes and traffic collisions, all of that from happening under his watch is because of how intimidating his figure is. It's neat to see him use like how imposing his physicality is to save people. That's the neat idea. And I actually like seeing that in this episode. Yeah, no, I agree. It was definitely it was definitely great to see. Uh, yeah, I want I want more. Yeah, it's not like again, like he's kind of the opposite of how All Might was when he was the number one hero. All Might almost always like inspired hope. And it's not that Endeavor doesn't do that, but Endeavor's physicality and the way that he presents himself is very different from All Might. Yeah, he's he's different almost every single way, but he's trying to be that beacon of hope. He's trying to be the best he can be. Yeah, and. It's going to be really exciting to see where we go from here. I think that we have another one or two episodes left of this arc before we move on to the next one. So it'll be really cool to see how Endeavor's teachings help develop Bakugo, Todoroki, and Deku to be better heroes. And we're going to see even more of it in the third My Hero movie, which is, of course, premiering in Japan this week. So, Oh, yeah. Which is why um, for... Those that are watching the sub for My Hero, that's why there's no episode this week, because the movie is premiering in Japan. Right. This is true. So in two weeks, we won't have an episode to talk about. <laughs> well, that's unfortunate. But um, do you have anything to talk about episode 15 before we move on to episode 16, Sean? I do not. But, but yeah, for that exact reason, because they were working on the movie is the reason why we got a filler episode this week um, in the dub or two weeks ago in the sub, if you're watching it subbed, um, which of course focuses on the female characters, which is great because we really don't get enough time with them usually. Um, and you can kind of tell this is a filler episode. We get um, some anime only characters returning um, like the, the sea lion hero. I'm forgetting what, is it Selty? Is that his name? Selty, maybe. Yeah, I think it is. Let's let's just go with that. But yeah, you can very obviously tell that this is a filler episode based off of um, Selkie is his name. Selkie. Selkie. Um, yeah. But you can tell this is a filler episode based on the way it's written. Like we have a lot of focus on the beach. There's not a whole lot of major development with the overarching plot. Um, they do reference the the drug that is amplifying people's quirks in this episode, which we um, have seen before my hero, particularly in season four, because it was one of the drugs that the Shihei Asaikai was selling to criminals on the black market. Um, and we're seeing that plot be a little more developed in this episode. And I've had a few people that are manga fans point out the fact that the drug specifically named in this episode originally appeared in my hero academia um, vigilantes, which is a spinoff manga of the main My Hero Academia manga. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um yeah, I did I did like I did like seeing that continuity from season four. But yeah. Um though honestly I really don't have much to say about this episode. It was just kind of a filler. Like my main thought this episode was like, can we go back to Endeavor with with the other three? Like that's that that stuff was really cool. Um I mean it and like also in this episode things seem to happen way too easy for everyone. Like like if there was a moment of tension, it was released like a few a few seconds later. Yeah, I think the only the only moment of like serious tension in this episode was um, Iraraka using um, her um, quirk to actually levitate the plane, which we've never seen before. We've never seen her um, use her powers on an object that huge, and you can actually see the stress that she goes through to try to do it in the episode. But that's like the only real like serious moment of stress. Here in this episode. Even then, she just does it. Yeah. 
But I think it's a good moment of character development, but it definitely could have been maybe a little better. But I mean, it's better than not getting anything at all with these characters because that's what happened in the manga. So I don't really, and again, I think we really needed an episode like this to happen because uh, of the amount of animation team that are being pulled away to work on the movie. Um, That's why this filler episode happened in the first place was because they're really trying to keep the animation where it needs to be as consistent as possible. And the best way to do that is to have a filler episode so that when we get to the major plot stuff, they can put in as much effort into it as they can. Yeah, that, no, that is a good point. I didn't know about the movie part, so that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, it was fun. It was it was nice, but uh, but yeah, well, let's let's get back to Endeavor and and all that. So, but no, yeah. it, it was it was definitely fun. Um, and I like I, I like seeing some. I like seeing uh some of the female characters. So any final thoughts on these two episodes of My Hero before we move on, Sean? I do not. All right. The other, probably the, well, I was not gonna say, why your next two anime are pretty heavy, but for but the first heavy one is, of course, Vivi Farid's song. And before we get into episode 10, which I know we both really want to talk about because of how really good it was, we got to talk about episode nine first, which was the conclusion of Vivi's fourth arc. And the end of Diva, sadly. Uh, this is a huge, I think this episode is a huge um, growing moment for Vivi or Diva as a character because this is presumably the last time we ever get to hear her sing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she, yeah, Vivi returned and lost the ability to sing uh, after. Diva was basically destroyed with the virus by a Android version of Yugo, which was definitely uh, interesting to say the least, but it was a very, it was very jarring to see just, Oh, well, Diva's being destroyed. Time for one last song. Oh, okay. Was not expecting this at all, Mm -hmm. but seeing her interactions with AI Yugo was, was quite good. There was so much brilliant writing in it especially with uh you know talking about android the ai's missions of you know vivi wants to sing and 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 the teacher wants to you know instruct like there's just all that like bouncing between each other yeah and the parallel there is that um his teacher the martial arts teacher that saved him from the crash and then went back in to try to save more people um, it's this very similar thing with how Vivi is because he went back in the save people because he can't teach people how to use martial arts if they're dead. He can't teach them. Um, he can't master or have any projects if the people that he wants to train are gone. And that's exactly the way, the reason why Vivi was got, was convinced to be involved with the singularity project is she was convinced that she couldn't sing for people. There's, she can't make people smile with her singing if there are no people left. And I think that parallel is really good. And that's the, the reason why he specifically captured Vivi to talk to her, because he wanted to understand where that drive comes from. What makes AIs want to help people of their own volition, of their own apparent free will, even though they're robots, they're programmed. Like, how can they make their own decisions to try to help? Where does that come from? And why, how is that possible? And I think that's really interesting. It poses a lot of really cool moral dilemmas in this episode that we're definitely going to see even more of going forward. And this is also far from the first time that we've kind of had questions about the, the AI's purpose because we got that back in episode six when the, the engineer, the technician killed himself because, his, because he related his purpose in life to AIs and his purpose was no longer there because his, lo- his lover died. So... Yeah, this show is not afraid to pull not only moral dilemmas, but very heavy hitting stuff. You know, we saw suicide a couple episodes ago, and now and now we get a virus shutting down Diva, and we're seeing all these just very hard hitting dilemmas, and it's yeah. it's 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 tough. It, it's tough to see, and and also you see. You see Antonio Matsumoto uh, battling, mm-hmm. and 
there was a lot of emotion that like yeah there's a lot of perils between matsumoto and antonio because they're both they're both seemingly helper ais trying to help um their their singstress technically complete whatever goal they want they want or have um the difference is antonio gave up he no longer thought felt like ophelia could be able to complete her mission so we tried to complete it for her and and he was corrupted because of that decision and compare that to masumoto who has complete faith in vivi despite their disagreements despite the the issues that the two of them have between each other he never once has like he has full respect and confidence in her that she'll be able to complete the mission even with their disagreements and that's something that Antonio never had for Ophelia. Not really. Yeah, it 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 kind of applies to it kind of applies to relationships in a way. Like when you're in a relationship, do you wanna do you wanna fix somebody or do you or do you wanna help them uh become what they want to be on on their well not on their own, but do you wanna do you wanna guide them to what they wanna be, or do you just wanna take over and fix things? One is much healthier than the other. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that what's even darker is that there you could it was shown that there is still a small part of Ophelia still in there that we see right before Antonio is finally shut down by Matsumoto, and that's just heart all kinds of heartbreaking. Uh, yeah. When Ophelia's like, I want like I wanted to sing for you. I'm just like, uh that yeah, that I was not okay in that moment. Yeah, it's really sad. Um, and I think that I, again, like this show has been able to ma- like handle, um, the sad moments, no matter whether the character is human or AI, I think almost every death or moment of distress in the show has been done really well. And so far I think Ophelia's is probably, it might be the, I, I think that outside of Vivi's breakdown in episode six, it might be, um, the saddest moment that we've kind of had in the show between that and then Vivi. Um, losing Diva and not being able to sing, which we'll go into more when we talk about the next episode. Yeah, this is true. Uh, I would definitely say it was it was probably the second saddest moment behind the suicide in episode six. Um, but no, that was that was a really sad moment. And this show d- does a great job of earning those emotional moments because there's a lot of shows that can force them or rush them. The, Vivi is not one of those shows. You earn like the heavy hitting moments. And yeah, they feel natural. And I think that, that that's the biggest reason why this arc needed to be longer than the other ones, because they needed to build up to the to these moments. They needed that longer character growth because this is a version of Vivi that we haven't seen before, one that was able to act more human, able to actually sing with all of her heart, like Vivi had always wanted, be able to sing on the main stage and not have any of the negative um, character traits that Vivi had in the first six episodes. And we had to see all of those traits, all of that confidence be derailed and peeled um, apart over the course of three episodes to the point where we get to the end of episode Um, nine and we see her lose the ability like see her know that um diva's going to die and that vivi is going to come back and take over from her and that that sadness that we see um in vivi's eyes knowing that um that part of her will be forever gone after that moment is really sad it is which leads to uh some very very tough moments in episode 10 yeah, I think that episode 10 is my favorite episode of the series so far. Oh, yeah. It's, it's such a, it's just so depressing. <laughs> it's so sad seeing Vivi stuck behind um, a glass display being forced to watch other people live their lives for her instead of her being able to live her own because she can't sing anymore. There's no, like, she can't perform anymore. There's no reason for her to be out in the world. Um, sharing her gifts with them because she can't like all she can really do is tell people about her past and be this relic in a museum that people go to to see the history of AIs to the point where when the kids on the school trip visit her none of them know who she is even though it's only been five years since her last performance yeah I really felt for her in that moment where she tried to she basically put on a smile and it was acting nice but 
you can just tell there was some pain underneath there. And sometimes visual storytelling uh, is the best storytelling because it is very subtle and it is very effective if you pay attention. And that's exactly what you saw here. You just saw just pain and sadness really making you feel for Vivi in that moment. And I, I also kind of appreciate it seems like Matsumoto was actively like going against his programming to try to help Vivi out. I wonder if that is something that was intentionally programmed into him to try to, to help Vivi not just complete the singularity project, but actually help mental state, like trying to get the singing back out of her with trying to get her to write her own song and to learn how to sing again. And then see her kind of repay that moment of Matsumoto with Osamu, who is the only kid from the school trip that comes back to visit her. Yeah, and this guy who, you know, basically formed a connection with Vivian, and she was like, hey, let's have a race together where, where I try to do what I want to do and you do the same. Mm-hmm. Where um, she, the, basically she wants him to break out of his shell. He, she wants him to stop being a loner and to make friends and grow as a person because she notices that he is being too involved with himself and doesn't trust other people enough. So she makes a deal with him that she'll be learn how to sing again to eventually be able to sing for him in or, um, as kind of a promise for him making connections and growing as a person. And then, well, he got married and had a child. Yeah, over two decades, we see him come back to Vivi and talk with her multiple times. First, we see him with several of his friends as a kid. Then we see him when he's older. We see him bring his girlfriend and then his wife. And then um, he shows her that uh, his wife is pregnant. And then he brings his daughter to show Vivi. But we notice that his wife isn't there this time around. And that already is subtle enough to show you that something is wrong. Um, And I think the, the reveal that his wife um, died in childbirth is just horrible, but also perfectly winds up with kind of the storytelling of, of the show and the tragedies that most of the human characters in Vivi have faced. Yeah, first of all, uh, uh, th- this guy being older, uh, Osamu, is voiced by Ray Chase. Yes, middle, middle, not old, old, but middle, like middle age Osamu, as we see in this episode, is voiced by Ray Chase. Which is um, absolutely amazing. Yeah, and I love his conversation with Vivi because it, all of this has happened over 20 years, right? And over all this time, all she's done is write a song, which will have importance later. But she isn't much further with completing her goal than she was when she beginning. While Osamu has lived 20 years of his life, has grown as a person, has gotten a major job working in robotics and has a family that he cares about and loves um, while Vivi is still there behind the case alone without any physical attachment to the rest of the world with people, with most people that come and talk to her, not even knowing who she is or who she was. Right. Uh, we see him very successful and eventually Vivi holding the baby gets inspiration. Yeah. When, when she realizes that like, like, yeah, Diva's gone, but, like, she will still always be a part of her, and then that inspires her to actually write a song. Yes, and I love the moment with um, Matsumoto where they're talking about her finally finding inspiration, and we finally get to see joy in Vivi's, like, pure joy in Vivi's voice again, um, something that we really hadn't seen since um, her performance in the previous episode. Yeah, that that was awesome to see, and I love when Matsumoto said, like, I hope we uh, wake up together with a happier future and, well... Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Um, but immediately after this, we get the... We get another conversation between Osamu and Diva where they're talking about the song being written. Um, and we, get, we finally get the word Osamu's last name. What did you think of the reveal that he is the... Matsumoto that we saw in the premiere that sent the AI back in time. My jaw absolutely dropped. I was not expecting that. It, it does make sense when you think about it, because, like, you know, Vivi was the one that was chosen for it. It makes complete and utter sense with the with this reveal. But, yeah, my jaw dropped. I was like, oh, my. They, they went there. Mm-hmm. And it was so well done. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. It also does a good job of telling you 
when the episode takes place and how close we are to the horrifying events in episode one, which we see very cut and dry in the post credit scene of this episode. Oh. Um, it's kind of unclear whether or not the apocalypse happened sooner or if we are the full 100 years in the future, all we know is that things are much worse than they were before for some explicable reason to the point where all the AIs are even singing the song that Vivi wrote in this episode. That's not okay. <laughs> That's painful. I hate this. Yeah. Um, being that this is the final arc of the show, I have a feeling, especially from the, the end of episode teaser between Matsumoto and Vivi, that we're going to be dealing with this fallout over the next three episodes and then trying to rectify it before yeah, it gets out of hand. Yeah, because there are 13 episodes in this show and we have three more. So basically they got to fix this for three episodes. I don't know how. I, I'm very excited and curious to see. But yeah, this looks bad. Like everything they did was looks like it was for nothing. Yeah. Um, if anything, it seems like, again, like it made everything worse, <laughs> um, which did. Vivi did pose a lot of questions during each arc, um, especially in um, episode nine, whether or not um, the events would have caused an even bigger reaction. And Matsumoto, with his programming, of course, blew it off because he's like, there were no other robot suicides, so it must have turned out fine, right? Wrong. Yeah. So I'm curious. Um, how Matsumoto is reacting to all of this, realizing that his mission has completely failed in such failed a spectacular fashion. <laughs> yeah, failed is an understatement. I don't know how they're going to get out of this mess, but I'm sure it's going to be great. I'm sure it's going to hit me hard because the show is built up very well and has done a lot to earn that. So it's going to be great. Yeah. No, I I love this episode. It's so good. And yes. the the ending has got me really excited for where the next three episodes are going to take the show so oh yeah absolutely it definitely is going to end in a in a very exciting fashion as it seems (laughs) oh boy i don't know if i'm ready for this (laughs) yeah but speaking of um depression in anime we watched episodes four and five of to your eternity this week which is the um closing of to your eternity's second arc and yeah this is these two episodes are rough. No. Um, episode four, of course, chronicles our main group being taken captive um, by Hayase and the rest of her men, um, along with Oni- the remains of Oniguma, as he is slowly dying, as it seems. Yeah. Oh, boy, we got to talk about this now. Okay. Um, yeah, so... First of all, Hayase is a terrible human being. You basically give them a taste of freedom. Like, you know what? Buy whatever you want. It is on me. You know what? Like, this will be a good life for you. No, I'm going to I'm gonna put sleeping drugs in your thing, and, I, and I'm going to capture you. That, that's just how cold-hearted can a person be? Oh, my God. Yeah, she's awful. <laughs> Absolutely despicable human being. <laughs> to, and, to say the least, man. Yeah, and... I think that, and there's a lot of heartbreak in episode four. Like we we see March try to write a letter to her parents, but she doesn't know their address, nor does she know how to write. So she can't really send a message to them despite all the things that she wants to say. Yeah. And considering what happens in the next episode, that just makes it even worse. Mm-hmm. Oh, but, but yeah, seeing seeing them in captivity and them trying to escape is really heartbreaking of course they they do almost get a successful escape attempt in the next episode um that of course goes horribly wrong yeah uh so we have our good old or or buddy here fushi um he is he is immortal and Hayase and hayase excuse me hayase sent a bunch of uh prisoners to try to kill fushi in exchange for freedom and full well knowing that they were not going to be able to, which is also horrible and despicable. Yeah, she's promising their freedom if they can kill him. And since he's immortal, that's impossible. Just draining all hope and and sanity from them, which is also which is also horrible. She is a truly evil human being. Oh my! Yeah, God. she's ruthless. <laughs> and considering that she survives these two episodes, I I would say that it's probably likely we're going to see her again later down the line. 
Yeah, and well, how do I put this in a non-blunt way? What if her guards try to, you know, do things to Verona at the end of episode four? So her men are also horrible. Is this surprising, though? Like, these are the same group of people that tried to sacrifice a young girl to Oniguma, thinking that it would give them prosperity. Yeah. Yeah. Here, here, here's something I just, I just, I just kind of need to, I just need to kind of put out there for a second. Um, so this is made from the same person who made a silent voice. This guy does not shy away from truly evil things happening. No, she does not. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> but yeah, uh, no, Hayase is terrible. Uh, it was nice to see them escape. And yeah, at the beginning of episode five, we had a conversation between March and Verona about Perona. Sorry, I kept saying Verona. Um, Perona about uh, whether or not to take, uh, you know, to take the bear's head with them as proof that they don't need to sacrifice children anymore. And what, what did you think about that? Because I was very conflicted how I felt about that conversation. It's, it's hard because their worship of Oniguma did give them a sense of peace, even though they were sacrificing people constantly. And it would probably derail the, the peace that the village has known and their society as a whole if she brought Oniguma's head. Um, I think the better option would have been just to tell the people that were against the tradition that it wasn't real rather than the whole village because that type of conflict would only cause disarray and chaos. Yeah, it would cause a sense of panic, and that's in, 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 a, in a bigger society, that is like the worst thing that could happen. Yeah, it's kind of similar to... Uh, it's, it's the reason why in Ruby, um, Ironwood was so against telling the world about Salem. Yeah. Oh, that's because it would cause mass yeah. chaos and panic and um, and ruin the peace that they were trying to uphold. And the same thing would happen if the village warned that Oniguma was just a mortal bear and nothing more. Well, um, they got to see Oniguma in a very different way. <laughs> yeah. What did you think of Fushi turning into Oniguma? That was brutal as hell, man. Like he. He just went savage after, um, after, um, yeah, um, yeah, 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 March is dead. Yeah, um, yes, March died saving Perona because Perona was going to get hit by an arrow that would have mortally wounded her, and March took it instead. Which I was afraid that was going to happen, and it still did, and... I felt horrible. I was hoping that Fushi would do that. Um, but no, it had to be a little girl that took the and I was not okay. And you saw the first stage of grief, which was denial. Perona basically had denial, which that also hurt too. But then you see the second stage of grief represented by Fushi, who just went completely off on the mm-hmm. whole. It was just going on a rampage. I gotta admit it was a little satisfying, I'm not gonna lie. Yeah. And yeah, again, like Marsha's death, like the death of the boy in the first episode, um, goes to show that no one in the show is sacred. Oh no. Um, this is a show this is a show about a protagonist who is immortal and can live forever, who learns from the people around him through experiencing life with them, and that includes witnessing their deaths. Yeah, and you saw in the fact that Fushi reacted this way shows how how much he's learned. And he's starting to pick up new phrases like it hurts or thank you so much. Yeah, I, I don't think he fully understands what death is. He just knows that March is gone. Very sad. Um, and I think the real heartbroken breaking moment is um, Perona living to tell March's parents that she passed away and giving them the weather that she had wrote in episode four. Yeah, that was painful. And then Perona tries to kill herself because life is too tough for her, which I, it's kind of understandable considering what she's gone through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but this Fushi, is. But Fushi yeah, actually sad. stops her from doing that. Well, of Wait. course he does. He knows that life is sacred. 
he may not fully understand what life and death is yet, but he he gets um, he wants to see the people around him happy or living them, their best selves, even if he doesn't truly understand what that means yet. Yeah, and seeing him as uh, on, uh, Onigafuma in front of the village was, and seeing the reactions was quite incredible. I liked, I liked seeing the pure shock and subversion of expectations from the villagers. Yes, um, their realization of, I, I, and the best part is that it doesn't destroy the way that they viewed um, Oniguma as a god. If anything, it further justifies their beliefs while also um, making them break apart their, their ritual of sacrifice and probably ending it there while not ruining their system of faith completely. Yeah, no, that is true. Um, so now that March is dead, now what? Yeah, where are we going to go with the next arc? I mean, we, as shown in this arc, we have Fushi warning how to speak. He's slowly warning what it means to be human and isn't acting like an animal as much anymore. But he's not, he's not really human. He's kind of like a baby in a boy's body. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's a great way to describe it. Uh, yeah, he, he's, he's, basically, he's about to learn so much more. And I'm excited for when he starts to really become human and like him actually having conversations because that's going to feel satisfying considering, you know, all we know, all he knows right now is a, is a couple of phrases. Right. But, but no, this is probably, I don't think it's as sad as the premiere only because of how striking the premiere is having like no knowledge of where the show is going and then watching that for the first time. <laughs> but this is a this episode five is fantastic. It's it's really well written, and I think it, as you mentioned, it deals with grief really well. It does with the representation of the first two stages, but yeah, I, I would yeah I would definitely say that the first episode will probably always be the most like shocking just because we didn't know what to expect. We kind of just went in blind, you know. I I certainly did, and but yeah, we've had two children die so far in this show. Nobody, I mean, except for Fushi, nobody is safe. And we could be blindsided by tragedy at any moment. And that is quite terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that is something to keep in mind once again going forward into the show, that nothing is sacred. Anyone could die, no matter how young or old they are. And I think the, the bigger tragedy is how much older the majority of the characters in this episode are than March yet. They all got to live on while she died. And that was something that they always, that, that was a core conflict of this arc since episode two, when March was first set to be sacrificed to Oniguma. Yeah. Life is cruel. Life is not fair. No. Um, but no, the, no episode five was fantastic. It's been a great first five episodes and I'm excited to see the next 15. Yeah. Um, yeah, with, with a two-core show like this, I'm also pretty sure we're going to have more than one season of this show as well. So it's it's definitely really heavy, and I really like how, the way that it deals with um, loss. And I think that it, it has a real physical, like, literal personification of the way that when people die, they're still a part of us because of our memories of them. And that is quite literally the case with Fushi because he can turn into um, those that have died. Yeah. No, that is true. Uh, I just looked it up, actually. Uh, it's a, The whole show is actually only 20 episodes. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I know it's currently airing, but... Yeah, it's a 20-episode series is what, I've, what, is what I've read. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, I wonder how much, I wonder how much uh, pain we're going to get these next 15 episodes because uh, they, 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 they just get straight to the nitty-gritty, especially with the limited time. So that just makes me even more scared about this revelation. Yeah, we'll have to see where it goes from here. But going into a new arc means that we're going to have uh, new characters and uh, a new setting. So that's always fun, at least at first, until it gets depressing and dark. <laughs> yeah, so I'm excited to see what this new place is like and what carries over from the from the second second arc. Yeah, but any final thoughts on on these two episodes before we wrap up the podcast, Sean? I do not. Well, that will do it for this week's episode of 
Nerd Explosion, what do you have uh, coming up writing-wise on the site, Sean? Well, I'm finally back and I write a, a couple of race articles. But as far as uh, entertainment goes, uh, I have two that are relatively coming up. Um, going through the third ace attorney game, uh, I'm three of the five cases into the game. So once that's done, I'll, I'll have a review of that. So that way I can have all three of the ace attorney trilogy on the site. Uh, when the bad batches finale ends, I will also write a review of that because I kind of, I kind of have dibs on uh, the on, on Star Wars content. Um, so those are like the two things that are upcoming. Also, I sometime sometime probably this month I'll probably play through Spider Man Miles Morales as well and possibly put out a review of that. Awesome. Um, I know for me. I don't think I have any shows wrapping up anytime soon, at least um, on my side of reviewing. I'll, of course, review things like um, Vivi and all the other anime that we're watching, like Two Year Eternity, when they inevitably finish, but that will still be a while ahead of us. But um, I think the only really big thing I have entertainment coming up is I the next analysis article. I mean, I, I know I've been teasing, like, maybe writing something on Loki, but I finally set aside on the topic. And I'm going to be tackling um, Lore Olympus, which for those that don't know what Lore Olympus is, it is a critically acclaimed Eisner Award-winning webtoon um, written by a New Zealand cartoonist that follows the love story between Persephone and Hades with a little bit of a modern twist with Hades running the underworld like it is a business and Persephone being um, the daughter of the rich conglomerate that is the seasonal goddess (laughs) um and her vast kingdom and persephone trying to separate herself from that while falling in love with hades who of course all the rest of the gods don't really like because he's the king of the underworld and they all think that he's dirty because of that and it's really interesting um it has some of the best art of any comic i've ever seen and it tackles all kinds of really interesting themes including sexual assault and rape and all of that and it tackles them really really well so i highly highly recommend if you haven't read war olympus it is free well you can go on you can download the webtoons app and you can read it for free on their app i think that there's almost 150 episodes of it already up there and the first volume is currently available for pre-order online and the second volume is coming out and each i think are covering i think 49 ish episodes um of lore olympus in total so it's it's really good. Highly recommend. But I'll be writing about it on the site soon with an article specifically tackling Hades and Persephone's relationship and all of the the rockiness of it over the course of the first like 100 ish episodes of the comic. All right, and that was uh, was not expecting that, but I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's good. It's it's really good. Um, why well, it's legit one of the best comics I've ever read. And it's definitely probably the best non-superhero comic I've ever read. And again, like it, it's a cartoonist, so the writer of War Olympus also does almost all of the art. She gets help from colorists and stuff every once in a while, and she, of course, has a separate editor. But she does everything else herself, the, the writing, the art, the weathering, all of that. Um, and that's really uncommon with most comics, because usually they have separate people for each thing it's very rare for one person to do all of the art for a comic i think the only other one that i'm currently reading that's like that is static but that's really cool i have to check it out sometime yeah it's good again it's free like you don't have to pay for anything at all the only thing you'd have to pay for is if you want to read some of the episodes in advance um you can buy coins on the webtoons app and read future episodes that have already been finished in advance before they release to the public but otherwise, it's completely free. Um, in fact, Webtoon in general, like if you like love reading comic books, but you don't have the money to buy them monthly, I highly recommend doing it through Webtoon because, first of all, most of the money from Webtoon go, comes from ad revenue on their app. And most of their stuff is free. And all of the the Webtoon's originals, like war olympus that webtoon sponsors and helps pay for on their platform come out weekly and have regular releases um kind of somewhere to how manga works in japan interesting yeah and the majority of the 
webtoons or web comics on their site or um, South Korean made. Like if you've heard of things like The God of High School or Tower of God or um, or Nabues, which are all um, anime that Crunchyroll has produced, all of those started out as webtoons that were adapted into anime. Hmm. Very so, interesting. Just- yeah. And War Olympus is, I think it's big enough that I'm pretty sure that um, it's getting a Netflix animated series at some point. Um, I don't think that we have a release date for it, but I believe that we got confirmation of that sometime last year. So, yeah, it's good. It really deserves everyone's attention. There's a reason why um, it's one of the highest rated romance comics on Webtoons. It's fantastic. Awesome. But, but no, um, that will do it for us here. Um, thank you all for listening. Have a great rest of your day.